0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Good morning, this is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, six Pacific nations have signed a landmark agreement committing to phase out oil and gas to become fossil fuel free. We'll find out why they're pushing for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. Fiji's honey is gaining popularity around the world, but could a parasite and climate change cause the new export market to come unstuck?
2: If you are not going and checking our bees at least a month, and you go after two months, you will find some dead bees.
1: And the Pacific new- music was on show here in Melbourne over the weekend, with the Pacifics Festival kicking off. We'll hear from Samo and artist Lani Alo, who's part of the lineup.
3: Where you are from in the Pacific, or you know, where you sort of our artists are representing. We we are connected by um, our sea.
1: All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, we start uh, in Solomon Islands, which seems to be the hotspot for international diplomacy this week. We were hoping to cross to Christine and Rita Amanu Leong, who is there in Honiara. She uh, will be telling us hopefully soon about the visit from Japan's Foreign Minister Yoshimasa Hayasi, and also a Chinese delegation also expected to be there, along with a drop-in by US diplomat Kirk Campbell, who is the White House Indo-Pacific Coordinator. He was chatting about his upcoming tour of the region. He'll be visiting not only Solomon Islands, but Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu and a few other Pacific nations as well, here's a bit of what he had to say in New Zealand about his upcoming Solomon Islands
4: trip. I'm here to discuss with the president and other members of his, his team our desire to um, maintain close relations um, with the Solomons. We've quietly underscored that there are a few areas that we would have concerns by if, for instance, the Solomon's chose to work in a manner that would encourage or support um, military power projection in the region. We think those steps would be unwelcome, uh, not just to the United States but for other countries in the Indo-Pacific. So, look, our. Um, we, we're, we're working closely. We're working closely with all the countries in the Pacific. We, we recognize the challenges, but we're here to continue dialogue.
1: That was the White House Indo-Pacific Coordinator, Kurt Campbell, who's leading a, a delegation from the United States to, to the Pacific. Um, he's expected in Solomon Islands, and as I mentioned, we will be crossing, hopefully very soon, to our reporter there in Honiara, Kristen Rita Almanu Liang. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Monday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. A block of Pacific Island governments has committed to creating a fossil fuel-free Pacific and are calling on all countries to phase out the production of coal, oil and gas. Joining us now to talk about this landmark new agreement is the Vanuatu's Minister for Climate Change Adaptation and Environment, Ralph Riganvano. A good morning to you, Minister Riganvano.
5: Good morning, Priyanka.
1: Um, So why has your country, why has Vanuatu chosen to sign on to this agreement to phase out fossil fuels?
5: We have chosen to do so because um, it's obvious that we have to do that. Uh, All the experts tell us that we need to stop uh, expansion of fossil fuel projects if we're going to meet the goals of staying below 1.5 degrees Celsius that we all agreed to in Paris. So we have the high-level expert panel on Net Zero, International Energy Agency, IPCC, UN Secretary General, telling us that continued expansion of fossil fuel projects is inconsistent with this objective. And yet we see many countries continuing to announce new fossil fuel projects into the future, which we know is going to just not contribute at all Is going to take us away from any possibility of meeting that target. And we know that uh, oil, gas, and coal is responsible for over 86% of emissions. And we know that emissions are causing climate change and the disasters we're experiencing, like in Vanuatu. We've just had the two Category 4 cyclones in less than a few days. First time ever in history. We all know that, but unfortunately, certain countries who have said they would be committed to climate change and make changes, are continuing to open new fossil fuel projects, and that's just totally inconsistent with what we have to do. And so it's time some of us made a move to try and stop this, and that's what we hope that uh, this will be.
1: Uh, who are those countries in particular? Because I, I imagine they include um, some of Vanuatu's uh, closest allies, like, like Australia. Uh, have you been having talks with uh, Australian delegates about, about your thoughts on this issue?
5: We have talked to Australia. Um, Australia continues to express sympathy with the Pacific in terms of meeting our climate change goals. Australia has signed up to the Boy Declaration, which says that the greatest security threat to the Pacific Islands, including Australia, is climate change. But uh, in Australia's actions, they're not uh, doing that. They're continuing to subsidize fossil fuel production. They're continuing to announce new fossil fuel projects And so obviously Australia isn't one of the ones that has called for this transition. We invite them to, we invite them to change their behavior and stop new fossil fuel production. Um, And that's what we're calling for. Mm -hmm.
1: What does this transition mean for for Pacific countries and and, um, your country, Vanuatu, Minister? Because I understand that, you know, the Pacific has a very low carbon footprint and production of coal and fossil fuels in the Pacific is is quite unheard of. Uh, Will you hope to phase up the use of fossil fuels in in your country?
5: We're hoping to phase out any fossil fuels in the Pacific. That's why we're calling for a just transition to a fossil fuel free Pacific. For us, this is quite easy in the electricity generation sector. For example, Vanuatu is on track to be 100% renewable electricity generation by 2030. However, in uh, land transport and sea transport, it's quite difficult. These sectors are currently completely dependent on fossil fuels. So we have some initiatives such as the Pacific Blue Shipping Partnership, um, the Pacific e-mobility policy and program to support us to try and move away in these particular sectors, land and uh, sea transport, from using fossil fuels. And that's why we talk about a just transition, because we will need assistance to ensure that we can have a just transition out of fossil fuel-dependent industries. And this can happen in a way that uh, creates... More economic opportunities, and is socially empowering for us, and we, we are calling on uh, increased public and private finance to assist us with this uh, with this transition. Hmm. I think in the yeah in the in the electricity generation sector, some countries are at different stages, but we're all sort of on the way to 100% renewable energy generation.
1: Hmm. Um, because I understand part of this agreement is also working towards a uh, fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty as well. W- what might that look like? What does that mean?
5: A fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty is uh, is the uh, treaty that both Vanuatu and Tuvalu have already signed up to supporting. and uh, in Vanuatu we had an extra member as well, Tonga come on board and other countries are considering. Basically, it's modeled on the uh, Nuclear Weapons non proliferation Treaty, basically saying that setting standards to say you cannot continue to do certain activities, uh, such as opening new fossil fuel projects. uh, And this is an agreement, and it sets up a monitoring mechanism. It sets up a uh, registry of fossil fuel projects, which can be monitored so that we can ensure that people can sign up to a uh, just transition pathway that is exemplified in the treaty. And we can have benchmarks showing, yes, we are meeting these targets. And we can encourage uh, each other as states to fa- phase out fossil fuels. Mm-hmm.
1: And when it comes to this uh, fossil fuel-free Pacific agreement that was just signed, I understand it's six Pacific countries, including yours, Minister Vanuatu, that has signed on to this um, fossil fuel agreement. Um, Do you believe more countries will support it? Is it something that will be taken to the Pacific Islands Forum?
5: Yes, that's our intention. We are now calling on other countries, including Pacific Island countries in particular. And we have a pathway of a number of regional meetings in the next months leading up to the forum. And we very much hope that by the time we get to the forum, there will be enough countries in the room to get a resolution on this.
1: How likely is that that'll um, happen, Minister rigan
5: Well, I'm hopeful, of course. We mm-hmm. wouldn't have done this if we weren't hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that uh, there will be at least one country in the forum which will be reticent, or maybe 2 <laughs> But uh, it's important that we continue to push this agenda because it's about our survival.
1: And and those countries, I, I assume one of them would be Australia.
5: Well, there's there's two fossil fuel producing countries in the in the uh Pacific Islands forum. One is Australia and one is Papua New Guinea. Mm.
1: Um and now it's it, this is all happening at an interesting time minister Eganvano because I understand um Vanuatu's who's, uh, who's been leading this ICJ p- p- bid this is to get uh, an advisory opinion on climate change to the International Court of Justice um that vote at the United Nations is coming up I understand you know just in in a few days next week I believe um, you mentioned there that your country is also recovering from those two devastating cyclones, the two category cyclones that hit um, just a few weeks ago. Has that made not only this fossil fuel treaty, and also, but also this ICGA grid all the more important and all the more urgent for you and, and your country, do you believe?
5: Yes, it just reinforces the urgency. Um, it has been urgent for a while, but... Uh, as, you know, as the years and months go by, we just continue to see the compounding impacts of uh, climate change negatively affecting our country, putting our economy back, you know, putting our society back. So we really are out of options, and we are, that's why we are taking such um, you know some might say extreme measures as going to asking the International Court of Justice to make an opinion on this, in this case, calling for you know, everyone to stop producing fossil fuels because. We see how it impacts our country. And uh, we don't have any options as, as a very small state. All we can do is try and push other states through these international fora to assist to co- commit to these, uh, these objectives.
1: Uh, Minister Vanu, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Thank you, Renga. That was Vanuatu's Minister for Climate Change, Adaptation and Environment, Ralph Reganvanu, speaking there about that recently signed uh, commitment by uh, several Pacific Island governments uh, to create a fossil fuel Pacific.
6: Join me Hilda Wayne
7: for Sisters Let's Talk I'll be interviewing incredible guests And discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women When you're younger you don't really take note of the significance of this ritual Until you're much older Then you realise that you're proud to be part of this ritual
2: So join me Hilda
7: Wayne for Sisters Let's Talk Witness days at 3.30pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia (laughs)
1: listening to Pacific Beat here on your Monday morning. And sorry, I did misspeak just before that uh, announcement came. Uh, It is uh, Vanuatu and other Pacific nations trying to create a fossil fuel free Pacific, not a fossil fuel Pacific. Um, But it is, of course, time to find out what's making news around the region. And to do that, we're joined by Nick Fogarty. Good morning to you, Nick. Morning, Priyanka. Um, let's start in Vanuatu, where we just were there before, speaking to the minister there. Um, it's in the midst of a difficult recovery, as we just heard from those two twin cyclones, Judy and Kevin. But they'll be getting some much-needed boost. Uh, what does that boost look you, like?
0: Yeah, so obviously uh, Judy and Kevin you know, struck earlier this month uh, in Vanuatu, destroying food gardens and homes and infrastructure and roads. But uh, now the United Nations Central Emergency Response Fund has approved $1.7 million in funding towards recovery efforts. So the UN has announced that the funding will be going towards three key areas, which is food security, water and sanitation hygiene, and emergency shelter. Uh, They're targeted at the most vulnerable and the most affected populations in Vanuatu. Uh, This was announced at a meeting this week of the Pacific Humanitarian Team, which is hosted by Vanuatu's government and the UN, where Vanuatu's Foreign Affairs Minister, Jotham Napat, said Vanuatu was still in a time of need, and he pointed out that Judy and Kevin also came at a time when Vanuatu was still recovering, or is still recovering, from the impacts of Tropical Cyclone Harold, which of course wreaked havoc in 2020.
1: Mm, yes, yeah, so very interesting. And I, I imagine also the impacts of, of the COVID-19 crisis as well it, in terms of the economy Definitely. and um, people's livelihoods. Um, it's also n- not not timely for that. I mean, cyclones are never timely, mm. um, of course. But uh, yeah, we, as we just heard from um, Minister Regan Vanu earlier in the show, it, it is a difficult time. And, and f- for a lot of for leaders in the Pacific, it's, it just um, highlights the urgency to get some progress. Um, Progress when it comes to climate change financing, they yep. say. Um, but let's stay in Vanuatu because there's also been reports of illegal transactions involving the sale of the country's diplomatic passports. So tell us more.
0: Yes, Vanuatu's Cash for Passports program has been a much-discussed topic, uh, including mm. here on Pacific Beats. And now the Vanuatu Daily Post is reporting that there will be an investigation into some cases of major flouting of that scheme. Again, the Foreign Minister, Yotham Napat, is taking charge after announcing in Parliament that while many people have applied for and been issued these passports through proper channels, uh, people had also obtained them without following due procedure. In some cases, people were asked to pay up to 100 million VATU for one passport, which is about 1.24 million Australian dollars at the moment. Uh, Some of those that obtained the passports reportedly had criminal records, including an individual known as the Prince, who it seems has a particularly bad criminal record. Uh, This comes, of course, after we reported in November last year that the European Union had permanently suspended visa-free travel with Vanuatu, citing concerns over transparency, which included the sales of citizenship to people who were listed in Interpol databases.
1: Yeah, very interesting, um, this this latest, uh, this latest, I guess, development when it comes to mm. the cash p- for, for passport scheme in Vanuatu. Yeah, very, very controversial, that scheme. I mean, one side is, as you mentioned, the concerns over uh, who's getting these passports if they are indeed on Interpol databases. Um, very interesting to hear about a Prince who might mm. be, uh, or at least the codename Prince, who might have a, a criminal record. But also, we can't... Can't forget that this scheme, this cash for passports scheme, has been incredibly lucrative to the Vanuatu mm. government. Particularly after, in fact, after Cyclone Pam is when this um, scheme came together and um, provided a lot of um, cash and, and benefit to the country, at least financially, yeah. as it was recovering. So. Yeah, I I understand that leaders there have been trying to come up with a way to appease everyone to make sure that the scheme is robust um, and has the checks and balances so they can still go ahead with it, get the money from it, but have it a bit more safe. And yeah, yeah, it doesn't seem like they've struck the balance quite yet considering this latest report, but we will keep an eye on that. Um, Let's head on to the sporting field now, Nick. Unfortunately, it wasn't to be for two Pacific teams in Super Rugby over the weekend. What happened?
0: Yes, well, the scoreline's a bit misleading in the Moana-Pacifica game as they went down to the Brumbies 36-62, to 62. Uh, but it was actually a highly entertaining game with five lead changes. Uh, the Moana were leading at the 53-minute mark when Samuela Molly drove over the line from their own rolling mall, but then the Brumbies really took charge and the score blew out uh, as the Moana ran out of puff late in the game. Uh, in the other match, the Fijian Drua put in the late charge of their own against the Queensland Reds uh, as after being down 24-3 to midway through the second half. The Drua then put their foot down uh, and almost snatched it, mm. but couldn't quite get there with the final score at 27-24. to um, But things are still looking up for the Drua this season uh, as they sit evenly poised now with two wins and two losses, seventh on the table.
1: Yeah, well, that, um, I guess we had that exciting win from the Indra last weekend, mm. um, with that home game in Lautoka. Um, yes, you, you can't have it all, but let's, let's hope they'll try, turn it around for the rest of the season. Um, thank you, Nick, for those stories.
0: No problem, Priyanka. And
1: that was Nick Fogarty bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. Uh, don't go anywhere. I believe we are about to head to Solomon Islands to find out about what's happening with all those high delegation trips. And we also have a story about bees. In Fiji, and how climate change and a very interesting might might be ruining the chances for future honey business keepers or businessmen beekeepers. Um, we will find out about that coming up. Pacific Beat. You are listening to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Let's head back to Solomon Islands now, which seems to be the hot spot for international diplomacy this week, with several high uh, high level politicians visiting the country to meet with Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare. Japan's Foreign Minister Yoshimasa Hayashi visited yesterday, and a Chinese delegation is expected soon, along with a drop in by U.S. diplomat Kurt Campbell. Joining us now to decipher what's going on is ABC's Solomon Islands reporter Kristin Rita Almanu Leong. Good morning to you. Kristen. And Rita.
7: Good, fellow morning from Honiara Priyanka. Um,
1: so tell us what is the mood like on the ground at the moment, Chris and Rita? So many high profile visits at the moment.
7: That's right. Uh we've we've um we we are experiencing a very busy air traffic here in Honiara <laughs> for the next couple of days. Um quite unusual as well. Um yesterday and um today and going forward. Uh but most Solomon Islanders are uh are just um you know basically doing what they usually do. They only see we've seen a uh a, a high number of police presence um patrolling uh, Honiara since yesterday so that sort of caught attention and people have been asking what's what's going on here in Honiara um, but other than that the media were uh, informed of these visits um, on Friday so hopefully you know Honiara is a small place, um, news travels very fast, uh, people on the ground will be able to, to know and catch up uh, with what's what's happening here over the next few uh, days, Priyanka.
1: Yes, very interesting time. And Kristen Rita, I understand the Japanese Foreign Minister visited yesterday. Uh, what happened during uh, that visit?
7: Um, yes, uh, for Japanese Foreign Minister uh, arrived yesterday morning um, into Honiara, um, quite early for some of us, mm-hmm. um, but he did. Uh, get straight into business because he only had a day um, to do all that he had planned to do. So he had a, a he made a brief uh, courtesy visit to um, Salt's prime minister. I had also seen them exchanging gifts before having their bilateral meeting. Um, now, as we know, Solomon Islands and Japan have shared long-term corporations, you know, uh, since uh, World War II, mostly in developments and Solomon Islanders would really um Know what the, what Japan uh, what the work of Japan is in uh, in the country mostly in roads and airports. Um, so their meeting with uh, the brief meeting uh, we haven't seen much of um, the outcomes of it. Uh, we've only seen a little from the uh, Prime Minister's office, but I believe that was uh, the talks were on strengthening um, how 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 best to strengthen the bilateral relations. There were talks on regional cooperation and. Um, also on the wastewater treatment oh, really? um, i think in the- Yes, um and I think in the coming days we'll really we'll really know and see um the details of this uh mm. as it as it is there's there's still nothing on that um from that meeting yesterday and uh yes, Japanese foreign minister also visited um few sites around Honiara um memorial site and there's a maritime school and it was he was uh very busy and you know sometimes it's fascinating to um to see how in a day or two, um, these uh, diplomats sort of just come in and, and, and finish all that they, they sort of plan out.
1: Well, I guess they need to wrap up quickly with so many um, so many others uh, ahead of them coming into Solomon Islands at the moment as well. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned that the jo- J- Japanese foreign minister is believed to have um, brought up that nuclear wastewater discharge um, with Prime Minister Sogavare. That, that is, of course, that controversial um, wastewater that's being discharged in, into the Pacific well, expected to be, but it's planned to be by Japan and and TEPCO, who runs the nuclear power plant there. But uh, a lot of Pacific leaders are are against it or have concerns about the impact of that wastewater on on the Pacific. Um, has Prime Minister Sogovare spoken out for against or in has any uh, has he um, announced any opinion on that wastewater, Chris and Rita? Uh,
7: not yet. We haven't seen anything, but from. Uh Talks with the, the officials at the Prime Minister's office. Um, they've they've, all, they've they've stressed um, the importance of our, our regional approach. So basically, what they're saying is the stand of um, Solomon Islands um, will be together as a, collectively um, with the Pacific family and whatever PIFS has um, placed forward, um, that'll be uh, Solomon Islands stand as well alongside mm. the Pacific. Very interesting.
1: Now, Chris and Rita, the next, I guess, high-level uh, delegation, I understand, is China. What do we know about that visit? Who exactly is, is coming to Solomon Islands?
7: Uh, yes, we do know uh, uh, a lot about uh, this visit. Um, Chinese ambassador, Li Ming visited um, Prime Minister Sogavari last week and um, to to brief him on this visit. So it's a visit by the China International Development Corporation, uh, Corporation Agency, and um this is the agency that looks after the uh, prc's foreign aid budget as well as um you know important portfolios uh, mostly here in 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 honiara it will be to do with the pacific games projects so i believe um from uh, ambassador leeming's visit to prime minister They'll be here um, over the next two weeks, Priyanka, um, for uh, to sort of monitor and, and see how the Pacific Games Stadium is and the dormitory project, as well as a um, medical centre. And um, Prime Minister Sogobar has also um, come out to say that he's really looking forward to this visit. Um, it'll be a, an important one for the country, um, as he says, um, uh, China is an important development partner, and it's a very critical time um, to have them visit us. So they they've landed um, yesterday, and they'll be meeting with the Prime Minister today, as well as other um, government line ministries.
1: Oh, very interesting. Uh, yes, and a very interesting time, as you as you mentioned those um, big projects for the Pacific Island Games being funded by China, and I guess them here for the next couple of weeks, or they're there in Solomon Islands at least, to um, to oversee them. Now, the last last lot of these uh, high-profile guests will be the White House Indo-Pacific coordinator, Kurt Campbell. Uh, he's touring the region and heading to Solomon Islands very, very soon. He was actually in, in New Zealand uh, recently, and as we heard earlier, we'll play it again, um, spoke about his upcoming trip to Solomon Islands. Let's take a listen to Kurt Campbell.
4: I'm here to discuss with the president and other members of his, his team Our desire to um, maintain close relations um, with the Solomons. We've quietly underscored that there are a few areas that we would have concerns by if, for instance, the Solomons chose to work in a manner that would encourage or support um, military power projection in the region. We think those steps would be unwelcome, uh, not just to the United States, but for other countries in the Indo-Pacific. So look, our um, we, we're we're working closely. We're working closely with all the countries in the Pacific. We, we recognize the challenges, but we're here to continue dialogue.
1: So that was the White House Indo-Pacific Coordinator, Kurt Campbell. There, Chris and Rita. Um, now, he, it was interesting the the choice of words that he had there. He he outlined some concerns that Solomon Islands could support military proje- power projection. And he said, "Well, it would be a concern if if that was the case." Um do you have any understanding what could that mean it sounds like a, a nod i guess to China's rising influence
7: Uh well Priyanka uh, I'm not an expert in that but without a, a doubt you know since the signing of the security pact last year um uh, the Sol- uh, Solomon Islands has definitely been in the spotlight and um, what I can tell you is there's been more visibility of you know china in the country um in terms of you know um, infrastructure and, and and their interest in in developing the country uh, like i mentioned earlier um what prime minister Sogavare had 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 said um but um, you know, the Solomon Islands government, um, Prime Minister Sogavari continues to maintain that Solomon Islands is friends to all and enemies to none. And uh, this might be interpreted differently. You know, I think um, also with all these concerns from Washington and, and mm. Canberra, um, with what we've just heard from, from Kurt Campbell, and also with the uh, U.S. reopening their, uh, their embassy here. So, there's an interest in you know all, all these superpowers but uh, solomon islands continues to maintain that they are friends to all and, and enemies to, to none and uh, also um we we've heard time in and uh, time and again of uh, prime minister manasseh Sogovari um assuring uh the Pacific family that, um, there'll be no military base, um, in the country. And, and I think, um, it's, it's a sovereign decision that Prime Minister Sogabare has, has made. And I think it's one that, um, I believe, um, should be respected by um, all the other other different um, countries as well. So, but definitely coming back to what Kurt Campbell had had, had said there, uh, dialogue, I believe, is the way forward. And I think uh, that's the approach that um, they'll be taking when they meet Prime Minister Sokovari tomorrow, Priyanka.
1: Mm, yes, very interesting to see. A lot of dialogue happening there in Solomon Islands at the moment. Um, and just finally, Kristen Rita, I wanted to ask, what, what does the public there in Solomon Islands think about it? What's the mood on the ground with the, with all these high-profile it's coming coming their way
7: Uh, Well, well, Solomon Islands and Solomon Islanders in general, you know, we we really rely on development aid, um, like most of the other Pacific countries do as well. So we, um, the mood on the ground is welcoming, you know, Solomon Islanders are are very friendly people, you know, and they welcome any visitors. Uh, But just odd, though, that there's, you know, three visits in three days. Um, That's something uh, that Solomon Islanders are quite, um, it's it's just uh, seemingly odd for uh, in that sense. But um these visits are important and they're seen as very important um to solomon islanders um and especially you know solomon islanders uh, they they vote these government leaders um to to um discuss matters of of um of national interests and um they would like to see more of that and i believe that will be something in the 3 days that um the government leaders will uh will amplify or discuss with the the different development partners or different countries um, that are here. But most importantly, um, I think Solomon Islanders would like to see that um, uh, whatever decisions that have been made, um, be it with Japan, China, or, or United States, um, it'll all be in the best interest of, of Solomon Islanders. Um, particularly in, in areas such as the infrastructure, um, in, in health, um, how to address unemployment. These are critical um, um, elements of, um, of of the country itself, and and we're starting to see a little bit of that. Um, with, all, with many resources being poured in by development partners and more opportunities uh, for locals. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's one that Solomon Islands are really looking forward to and seeing and really understanding how this will, um, will reflect on their daily lives. But the bigger question now is, Priyanka, what do these development partners expect in return?
1: Yes, indeed. Chris and Rita, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Thank you for having me, Priyanka. That was a Chris and Rita Amanu, Leong ABC's reporter there in Solomon Islands.
5: You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia.
1: Beekeepers in Fiji are facing a dilemma. Popularity is booming, and Australian researchers are working with local honey producers to create a new export market. But but a varroa mite invasion has decimated hives, and thanks to climate change, beekeepers are saying their bees are hungry. Lucy Cooper
6: has this story. On the outskirts of Nandi, the tourism capital of Fiji... Nilesh Kumar checks his beehives.
2: When we come, we normally stand on the side so that we don't disturb uh, their flight. And then we start walking.
6: Since starting beekeeping in 2009, Mr Kumar has turned his hobby into full-time work and he is now the Fijian Beekeeping Association president. But he worries for the future of his numerous hives.
2: Fiji is a tropical country compared to other countries. We hardly have, uh, like, uh, four seasons. And, uh, like, uh, normally the adverse weather in past was not that bad. And uh, bees were able to manage with no supplement feed. But I know with the climate change and uh, the adverse weathers we had, we have to educate, and we are educating the farmers that they need to. The beekeeping, nine years or ten years in back in Fiji was very relaxed, like uh, you just go and check your hive, maybe twice or once in three months, and then you still know that your bees will survive. Because we have got enough nectar, we have got enough pollen, and once you have a good queen, you know they will survive. But once we got this mite, we cannot do that. I have to go and check my bees at least a month. And if you are not going and checking our bees at least a month, and you go after two months, you will find some dead bees.
6: Working alongside Mr Kumar is Dr Cooper Shuton, a lecturer with Southern Cross University in Lismore and a project leader for the Bees for Sustainable Livelihoods Research Group, currently overseeing a four-year Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research Project in Fiji. He says hungry bees is a challenge the industry faces across the Pacific including in Australia. I think
8: the beekeepers here will be able to tell you that, that, you know, when they open up beehives, that their bees are looking hungry. They don't have food stores. You open the lid, there's not much honey in there. There's no pollen stores. So basically it's like going into someone's house and there's no food in the pantry. How are you expecting those individuals in that household to go out and live productive lifestyles at work? It's the same for honeybees. How are they meant to go out, live healthy lifestyles and not get sick? So it's the same for bees. And finding better ways to adapt to climate change for beekeepers this is something that we're all going to have to work on together. We've got increasing rainfall events that wash nectar away. We've got floods, droughts, fires, cyclones. Um, And these are things that we need practical skills and research to inform decision-making to better respond to those changing environments.
6: Like cattle, bees also need supplement feed.
8: If uh, the feed is not available, they will uh, starve and
2: the colony will uh, become weak. We need to do supplement feed. But at the, at the moment, like the only supplement feeding that we are doing in Fiji is the dough sugar. We are not providing them any nutrients or pollen or anything else. Last week, like the continuous rain, so I was worried like what's going to happen if it continues and uh, the amount of sugar, we are just feeding sugar and it will be gone in a few days. And will the bees uh, will survive or not? And in terms of uh, nutrition and protein, Yes, because we know we are just giving them sugar, that is the energy that they'll be getting, but what about their protein, what about their nutrition?
6: Mr Kumar says hunger is not the only challenge he is facing with his hives. Varroa mite, the most serious pest of European honeybees, entered Fiji in 2018.
2: I have seen the news, like what had happened, like there was a lot of panics going on in Australia, but when it happened in Fiji, like... Uh, the news were not break that fast and like the biosecurity was trying to control or eradicate it, but then it went out of hand and now it's on the farmers. And the farmers uh, are taught like uh, how to treat mite, but like uh, in, when any disease comes in, these are lost. And we lost a lot of hives in the last couple of years. Even myself, uh, I'm a, one of the experienced farmers, I lost uh, about 10% of my hives. Uh, we have to manage it now, we won't be able to irrigate.
6: As the beekeeping industry grapples with hunger and pests, Dr Shuton and Mr Kumar are focusing on the progress they have already made and hope to make in the future.
8: We are seeing a lot of growth um, in production, in numbers of hives, but importantly in people's capabilities, people's skills, people's enthusiasm. Um, people are growing the diversity of products that they're producing, they're producing all sorts of different things. We have people that are providing training now as a part of their business model for value-added products from beeswax, lip balms, candles, soap, surf wax, surf zinc you know, reef safe stuff. That's, that means there's new products available that are made from local people, local families going back, you know. So it's a really cool thing to see and it's not just about generating income. It's also about, you know, the industry strategy. Where do we see ourselves in five to ten years from now? Where's our next up-and-coming bunch of young researchers that are going to lead the way? Uh, What are the new products that we want to see on shelves to be able to support, you know, rural households and for rural households to be able to have access to those products?
1: That was Dr. Cooper Schutten of Southern Cross University ending that report from Lucy Cooper. And Lucy travelled to Fiji with assistance from the Crawford Fund. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Monday morning. The diversity of Pacific music was on show over the wo- weekend here in Melbourne at the Pacifics Music Festival. From Polynesian choirs, drill music out of Australia, and the latest in PNG hip hop, the, el- the event celebrated contemporary Pacific artists. Samu and gospel singer Lani Alu will, will, was part of the lineup uh, in his Melbourne debut, and he chatted to me just days before the event.
3: I'm very uh, look in general. I'm I'm just excited to be a part of of you know the the awesome lineup that we have. Um, I am looking forward to um, I mean just being on the same card as uh, you know people like uh, Creative Natives and uh, you know Lissy and and, and the H P Boys. You know <laughs> um, I'm I'm super excited to just just be a part of uh, you know be on the same lineup as them and and obviously uh, you know getting to hopefully get to spend some time with. Uh, the, the artists uh, backstage. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm super amped.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and Lenny, you're, you're a gospel singer and choir singer. Um, but, it, you know, just from the artists that you've mentioned, we've got drill music, we've got some reggae, we've got all sorts of music. What, what do mm. you think unites specific music?
3: Look, I think it, it, there's a lot of things that uh, come into play. Obviously, our languages, um, you know, every... Uh, every country in the in the Pacific, uh, you know, right across the mana, we all have our, our individual languages, but there are a lot of similarities, and um, I think that's that's definitely one of them is, you know, the fact that we speak uh, our native tongues, and um, also, you know, the fact that uh, I speak, you know, purely for in regards to a lot of our artists. Um, who have you know migrated down to the diaspora and are, are making music of the Moana and Pacific music in the diaspora. I think that's, that's also another um, key thing that kind of unites us all. Um, but uh, as cheesy as it sounds, you know, uh, and, and I, like I've mentioned before, we are children of the Moana. And so, you know, regardless of uh, where you are from in the Pacific or, you know, where each of our artists are representing, we, we are connected by um, our sea, you know the, the sea and the water that we that surrounds us. So, um, yeah, creativity aside, but on, on a more heart note, I think that's that's the one thing that really unites um, you know our artists and our people in general.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioned uh, language there, Lani, because I know a lot of your music. I mean, you, mo- most of your music really is in Samoan. You sing in Samoan, mm. a- and these amazing songs that. I mean, I don't speak Samoan, but I can just see from the comments from um, some of your music that you've put up online, people are incredibly mm. touched by your lyrics and hearing the songs in their language, in Samoan. What, mm. what do you think that's like as a performer? Why, why do you choose to perform in your language? And why do you think it makes, it strikes such a chord with your audience as well?
3: Um, I, I, it's it's not really... Uh um like a choice as such, you know, uh, when when I first started um, you know, taking my music seriously and then, you know, wanting to pursue it as a career, I never really uh, set out to be like, okay, I'm just gonna sing some songs. You know, if anything mm-hmm. I, I um I, I write um, you know, predominantly in English. Um but oh, right. it's just uh, it's just a thing that's come about, you know, and, and uh and uh, meeting new people and, and working collaborating with new people is writing and, and performing and singing in the Samoan language is, is just something that is uh you know I, again I'm sorry for the cheese but it's, it's part of who I am you know it's part of my upbringing and so um it's not necessarily a decision or a, or a conscious choice it's just um it's for me what the message that I want to what I, that I want to share it's the best um, vehicle to do so. You know, I find that sometimes it's easy to share a message in Samoan, sometimes it's easier to to share a message in English, but, you know, for the the songs that I have released, uh, Samoan's been uh, the right vehicle to do so. Um, And I think, you know, the the reason why people uh, respond in the way that they have responded is, is for many reasons, you know, some people are out of touch with, or have lost their connection with their culture, and they may not be able to speak someone, but they understand someone, and so when they hear the language and uh, you know and, and the format that we're presenting it, and uh, I think it really hits a lot of nerves and really hits home for a lot of people that are listening. Um, and and even you know there there are many people who have um, you know responded and, and reacted to, to my music who are not Samoan or who have no idea what. Um, what the lyrics mean, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of the language, but I think that's where um you know the lack of knowledge of the language, the music really transcends a lot of the you know, and so um yeah, I think people feel the heart, regardless of whether. Uh, they understand the language or not, but they really feel the spirit um, and the heart behind the music. Mm.
1: Uh, uh, what, what inspires you in in your music? Because you do, it seems, spend a lot of time in the lyrics and and you know, really evoking these strong mm. strong feelings that, yet, like you said, transcend the language as well. well what is the mm. process of of writing your your music like? What inspires you?
3: Um, what inspires me? I, I really really don't need to look far for inspiration when it comes to writing you know writing the songs or writing my music you know i'm i'm, I'm a big believer in that uh you, you're surrounded by um your your everyday life is what should inspire you or you know things that ring true to your heart and so for me you know i'm I'm inspired by my faith i'm moved by my faith i'm moved by my culture um my upbringing as a young samuan uh you know born and bred in new zealand like that's uh that's a a unique perspective. And and so I I tap into a lot of those, um, those real life experiences and and try to bring that forward in the music that, you know, that I write as well as, um, you know, when I'm collaborating with my team, um, we we tend to to draw on a lot of those real life experiences. um, And just things, you know, that are intrinsic to us, that are true to us, um, you know, growing up in a Samoan family or, you know, uh, growing up with a, as a young youth and uh, and Sunday school. You know, these are these are things that are very real to us. So when I'm writing or when, when my team and I are writing we that's our, our first point of call. You know, um it's obviously, you know, there are other artists and writers who who write from uh, <clears throat> you know building a, a story, you know, building like a, a story which may be fiction or not and you know, sometimes to share a message but for, for us we're always like start with home and what's real and what's you know what's true to us and then from there we branch out
1: Mm. i mean it sounds like music has been a part of your life for a very long time lani but you're you're quite unusual as a musician because you've actually studied music i understand you have a (laughs) postgraduate diploma in music performance why did you Mm. decide to go down that journey
3: um, I, it was just a natural progression thing for me. You know, I finished up high school um, and one of my teachers who was my music teacher, one of my music teachers at the time in high school, um, he was a, a graduate, and alumni of the University of Otago uh, here in New Zealand in Dunedin. And um, I, I was never, I don't think, at all. by the time I hit the end of my high school year, I, I knew I knew that I was never going to uh, pursue like classical performance or anything. You know, I was always um, a singer-songwriter. And so I saw that my teacher had graduated with a, uh, a, con- a music contemporary music performance degree from Otago, and I asked him, like, sir, like, you know, can you do that? <laughs> I was mean, like, yeah, man. And so from there, you know, I, was, I just knew that that was my calling in terms of uh, uh, really sharpening up and and upskilling for the career that I, I, you know, essentially find myself in now. Um, And so, yeah, I was able to study in Dunedin for many years, um, did my bachelor's and my postgraduate diploma, and um, that really set me up for the, that really set me up for the, you know, where I am now in terms of my career.
1: That was a musician, Lani Alo. Uh, he performed at the Pacific Festival here in Melbourne over the weekend. And with that, that's the end of Pacific Beat. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning. Until then, have a lovely day.